Just want to call your attention to uh, a couple of announcements. Uh, for one, today is uh, our quarterly missions offering. And so the, the amount is split up between the various missionaries that we support. And so if you'd like to contribute to that, you can, uh, you can drop a check in the offering box on the welcome table. Put quarterly missions offering in, in the memo on that. If you... If you are like, oh, I, I didn't have a chance to uh, prepare this week, that's okay. You, you have opportunities to give. If you would like to do so, you can do it online. Uh, look for, for the links uh, on our website. Or if you want to uh, bring it next week, you know, we're not going like, to close it off uh, with, with only what we have today. So if you'd like to contribute to the quarterly emissions offering, uh, there's an opportunity to do so. A couple other prayer requests. We want to be... Uh, in prayer for Mark and Mary Bristow. Also the Metzlers, they are, uh, all four of them, in Haiti right now. And so let's lift them up that, that God would give them safety as they are doing some missions activity down there. And uh, finally, we also want to pray for the family of Jim Gillette. Um, many of you are familiar with Jim. He, he is a longtime uh, missionary and uh, head of the Ireland Outreach International. Also, Jim is Mary Klein's brother, and so he passed away on the 6th. So let's continue to uh, pray for his family, uh, pray for the, the many mission works that he has been involved with, and that God would, would continue to use the seeds that have been planted and continue to bring fruit out of those works. I just want to read, highlight one of the verses from our passage today, and that is from Romans 7. 7 verse 4 says, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Um, you know, Jesus' resurrection isn't an Easter-only kind of truth. It is, is a truth that we take with us throughout the year. And, uh, you know, as, as we're going to see as Steve preaches from this chapter, you know, our identification with Christ is really the basis that we have to be able to serve him. Death in vain forbids him rise.
worshiping with us this morning in person and online. And uh, want to remind you again, if this is your very first time at Creekside, there is an additional fold on the bulletin. And if you would take time to fill that out and put it in the offering box that's on the welcome table in the entryway, that'd be great. If you're part of our regular church family, again, that uh, extra fold is also for you. If you have prayer requests or uh, something you would like to um, let us know about or interest in some ministry or something, please let us know that. Also, just want to uh, welcome back Tim and Danielle. Uh, thanks for, uh, they, they recently got back from a mission trip, so I'm anxious to hear about it. So I uh, ask you to inquire of them as well. So trust that uh, we're grateful they're back, and uh, we'll see what God has done in and through them. I'd invite you to turn with me, if you would, to God as we pray. Father, We thank you for the work of Christ and what it means to us, and we pray that you would take those truths, you'd wash over our hearts and our souls, so that we might not just know them intellectually, but that it really would uh, guide and govern our lives. I pray and ask that you would continue to watch over and protect uh, those in our church family, many still recovering from illness or injury, uh, those who are grieving, uh, those who are serving in uh, foreign lands right now. I think of uh, the Metzlers and uh, Mark and Mary Bristow, and I just ask that you'd give them safety and protection, guide them in their ministries. I pray now as we open your word that your spirit would speak to our hearts and Father, I ask that if there's anyone who's listening, who's here, who, who has never fully surrendered their life to Jesus Christ, that you would work in their hearts and that this would be the day of salvation, that this would be the day that they, they yield their lives to you and find new life in Christ. I pray for those of us who know you, that our hearts would be stirred and that we would more fully reflect the reality of who we are in Jesus. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Years ago, uh, we were audited by the IRS because I had been doing my own taxes and done them inappropriately or wrongly, not knowingly, but incorrectly. And we ended up paying just the back taxes. We didn't have to pay any penalties, which was great. And so in that regard, we became dead to any further liability, uh, but we still had a relationship with the IRS, <laughs> as, as, as we all do, you know, we, that relationship didn't end. This morning, as we get into Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 13, we're going to find that uh, we discover that, that in regard to the law, believers have much the same relationship that we have with the IRS. We're dead to the penalty, but we still have a relationship. And we are not, not done with, with our relationship to the law, in spite of the fact that the law has many limitations. And we've seen in Romans so far that the, the law cannot save us. We saw in Romans chapter 6 that the law cannot sanctify us. It cannot make us in itself more like Christ. And today we're going to see that the law cannot slay us. It cannot kill us. Because uh, no matter our sin, because God has taken care of it. But we still see that the law has value. 
And so I, I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. We're going to look at these 13, first 13 verses, and we're going to see that, that there are two ways that our faith in Christ helps define our relationship to the law and our response to it. Okay? It's our relationship with Christ helps define our uh, relationship to the law and also uh, directs our response to it. So I'm reading Romans chapter 7 beginning with verse 1 through verse 13. New American Standard, the text is printed up on the screen in front of you, or if you have uh, your device or a Bible, or there should be one under the seat in front of you somewhere, Romans chapter 7. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. For the married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he is living, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning her husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. And I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And the commandment which was to result in life proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking, uh, taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, that through the commandment, sin might come, become utterly sinful. That's a mouthful, okay? There's a, there's a lot in there. And there's a lot of law and sin and sin and law and me and law and I and this. And so we're going to try to tease it out, okay? I see in the text uh, two ways, as I said before, that our faith in Christ defines our relationship to the law and our response to it. And the first one is this, we're released from the law. In the first six verses, we see that we are no longer under the law's demands and we're no longer the law's damnation. Two pillars upon which we understand, our understanding here rests. First is the condition of our release is prescribed, okay? The condition of our release is prescribed and there's three points that I want to make under this with regard to that. First, the condition is articulated. We see this again in uh, verse 1 that we've seen before, this question, or do you not know? Okay. He knows they know it, but they don't know it until he says it. So once he says it, then they're going to say, oh yeah, I know that. I realize that. So he's just introducing a truth that his readers will hear and understand once he states it. He's addressing brethren. He says, do you know brethren? 
his brothers and brothers in Christ, sisters as well, but his, his, the Jewish believers that are familiar with and fond of the law. That's my paraphrase of what he says about the law there, okay? They're, they know. They know that any law, and it's interesting because in the, in the verse it says, you know that, that law, it may say in your text, the law, but there's no article in front of it in the, in the original Greek. It's just law. They know any law has jurisdiction over a person. What does it mean to have jurisdiction over? It, it, it means that it demands obedience, apart from which they suffer a consequence, as long as the person is alive which is just standard common sense, right? The law makes, has jurisdiction over a person if that person is alive. Only living criminals are subject to the law's punishment. Makes sense. The, the, the Perry High School shooter. Tragic situation. But that criminal is not under the law's jurisdiction because he's not alive. You can't convict him of a crime. You can't do anything. Secondly, the condition is illustrated. And this whole issue of the marriage, it's illustrated using the analogy of marriage. And so I want you to understand this is an analogy of marriage, not a doctrinal treaty on marriage and divorce and remarriage, okay? It's just saying this is an illustration from from the law. Marriage laws are binding as long as both partners are still living. That's what he's saying. A woman is bound by law to her husband her living husband, but she's released from the requirements, the, the covenant of marriage, if he passes away. Okay. Now, there are other reasons why she might be released in other passages of Scripture, but they're not mentioned here. Okay. But it's just this passage, which makes her then free from the, the law so that if she remarries, she's not under any penalty by following the law. And Paul said the same thing in 1 Corinthians 7, 39, that a woman's, you know, if someone's spouse dies, you can remarry. It's fine. Then we see that's the illustration. Then he demonstrates it. He kind of punctuates it in verse 3. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. If her husband is still living... And she remarries another man, she commits adultery, but not so if he dies. Okay, Simple so far. So that's the condition. This is the, the, the principle. You're under the law as long as you're alive. Now, the confidence of our being released from the law is, is provided. And the two facts that he, he gives to us. First of all, the declaration is in verse 4. He begins, Therefore, my brethren introduces the application of the marriage illustration okay so he's applying the marriage illustration to their to believers to show that through union with Christ our union with Christ believers have a new relationship to the law and what is that relationship he goes on to discuss it in the same way that a woman is released from the 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 laws of marriage if her husband passes away and is free to remarry, so too, the text says, we were made to die once and for all to the Mosaic law. And how did this happen? By a work of God in response to our faith. Our faith in what? 
or whom? It says our faith in the body of Christ. Interesting language. I mean, why not just say in Christ? In the body of Christ. Why? Because it had to do with Christ's body that was crucified on the cross as the payment for our sin so that we would no longer, if we by faith accept and trust in him, are no longer subject to the law's demands, which would be if we sin, we die. Romans 6, 23. The wage of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We've been delivered from the law's punishment of death through our union with Christ in his body. And we saw this in chapter 6. If you go back to chapter 6, it says, Or do you not know that all those who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, verse 3, have been baptized into his death? Therefore we've been buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. We're dead to the law. Dead to the law's demands of righteousness that would require of us and dead to the law's damnation that would cause us to be eternally separated from God because we're in Christ. We've been united with Christ. Our disobedience can't condemn us because we are justified by faith. The law requires righteousness. And through faith in Christ, we have been declared righteous. Therefore, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the work of the law. What does it mean to be justified? Declared righteous. Romans 3.28. Romans 5.1. Therefore, we've been justified by faith. We have peace with God. No longer subject to his enmity. You read Verses chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. If you look over at chapter 8, verse 2, it says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. If you're here listening and here this morning and you're trusting in Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're dead to the law. The law can no longer bring about your death because of your sin. It's taken care of. The cross. If you're not trusting in Christ, then you're not dead to sin or the law and you are subject. The wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. By faith in Christ, by faith we're joined to another. That's, we're married, if you will, to Jesus, okay, who was raised from the dead and we with him to walk in newness of life. Romans 6. Verses 4 and 5. We've been raised with him to walk in newness of life. Into a glorious spiritual marriage. With Jesus. Why? Why would God do that? Well, look at the text. It says in verse 4. That, see the word that at the end of the verse? That, this is the purpose we might bear fruit for God. Wow. Those who are captivated by God's mercy prove we are his disciples by promoting good and opposing evil for his glory. We've been saved, Paul said it in Ephesians chapter 2, saved to serve. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, which means brought into this union with Christ Jesus for the purpose of doing good works. Saved to serve. And we prove we're his disciples if we bear fruit to God for his glory. We see this in Matthew 5, verse 16. 
Jesus told the disciples, your light shall shine before men in such a way that you, they will see your good works and what? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. Jesus said it in John chapter 15, verse 8. He says, my, my Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. How is God glorified? By us bearing fruit. How do we bear fruit? What does that mean? It means that there's somehow within us, at least this is my take on it, I mean, there's a lot of ways you could describe it, and this is not the end of it, but at least in, in part, it, it's that we see that, that life is not about us. If you're here and you know Jesus Christ, your life mission is to bear fruit for God. Galatians chapter 2, we know verse 20, but look at verse 19. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might what? Yeah, I can do whatever I want. You don't remember the argument? If we go back into Romans chapter 6, well, well, so shall we just continue in sin that grace may abound? Because, hey, we're free from the law. We're free from sin. We're, we're just ready to live for... No, live for God. For I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Dr. David Livingston. Dr. Livingston, I presume gave up his comfortable life in England to serve the Lord in Africa where he died at a very young age. And I read an article one time that said, well, you know, know, the people who accused, he said it was a wasted life. Now he was a medical doctor. He could have stayed in England and served the people and, and made a lot of money and had a comfy life. And the end of the article says, no, it wasn't a wasted life because there's no life that's wasted in service for the king. We've been saved by God's grace and His glory to serve Him. No wasted life if it's lived for God's purpose. I ask you this morning, myself, is that our purpose? To bear fruit for God. I don't care about your vocation. I I mean, I care about it, but it has nothing to do with our vocation. It has nothing to do with our occupation, our vocation, our location. It has to do with our salvation we're saved to serve christ now there's an explanation of our release in verses five and six paul explains further uh, why fruit bearing is our calling and he does this by introducing and making a contrast between our old life and our new life okay and so he he makes this 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 contrast in verse five and six he says this for while we were in the flesh the sinful passions were aroused by the, the law were at work in our members of our body to bear fruit for death but now so you see is for while we were and then the but now so there's a stark contrast and he starts to list for us these several marks of the old life we are in the flesh what's that the flesh. It's our unregenerate humanity under the control of sin. That's who we were, our old life. In our unredeemed condition, sinful passions were aroused by the law. How is it that the law arouses sinful passions? Well, first of all, it points them out. You know, it exposes them and it shows us their existence and the extent. 
Um, I mean, that's what we see in, in verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. So that's how it arouses them because it makes us aware that we're sinning in ways that we never knew before. But it also arouses them in another way because the law makes us aware of our sin, but then our rebellious nature within a fallen human being propels us to engage in the very things the law says we shouldn't do. Okay, little test. Uh, have you ever gone to a store? Now you're walking up to a, a big, big, big department store, and there's these these sliding, you know, automatic doors, you know. And there's an entrance sign and an exit sign. Anybody here ever gone in the exit sign? No. Why? Why? Because I can. Right? Is that not evidence of the rebellious heart? I, they want me to enter here, I'm going to enter here. Because I can. So the law arouses evil within us. It arouses it. it. It makes us aware of what's right and wrong. And we choose to do what's wrong. Because of our sinful nature that is within us. These sinful passions are exposed by the law. They were, it says, the text, verse 4. They were, or 5, they were continually at work. Exerting their power in our sinful body. Now, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. They were at work in our, our members of our body at the end of verse 5. What for? To bear fruit for death. You see the contrast? Those of us who have been brought into a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ have been saved to bear fruit for God. But those before that, we were bearing fruit for death. Eternal judgment. Then I love it. Again, some of the best words in the Bible, but now we're but God. Verse 6, but now, but now, something's different. In our redeemed person, we as believers have been released from the law. From the law's demands. The law's demands for perfection because you must meet up to the demands of the law or you die. The law's demands for perfection. Having died, the text says, to that by which we were bound. We're dead to it. I had to fulfill the law or I would go to hell. But in Christ, I have fulfilled the law. I'm going to heaven. I'm no longer bound by the law. Believers died in Christ. We died to the, the power of sin. We died to the penalty of the law. Galatians 3 uh, we, I mean, we died to the penalty of sin, that's chapter 6, okay? We, Romans 6, we died to the penalty of the law, that's Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. He delivered us, he paid the price for us and bought us out of that slave market so that we no longer pay that penalty, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That's the sacrifice, that's the penalty, that's the price that's been paid, that's what it means to pay, uh, he, he, he was satisfied the, the wrath of God against our sin. The result of our freedom from sin's control and the law's condemnation. What should be the response? Hey good, we can do whatever we want. No! Our, our, the result of 
our release and freedom from sin's control and the law's condemnation is not disobedience. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Verse 15 of chapter 6. What then? Shall we, uh, we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? May it never be. It's not true. That's not it. But we serve. Notice the text says in verse 6. But that we, so that, again, the, the purpose, that we serve in newness of the Spirit. And not oldness of the letter. I like that. Hey, we've got a new life. A new lease on life. We're not living in legalistic bondage, doing things out of duty. We're living in the power of the Spirit, living free. Because we want to serve God. It's our response. We're slaves. Now, this is a, servants is kind of a misnomer. The, the, the Greek term, liter, term literally means slaves. So you might, that might damper your, your enthusiasm a little bit. Uh, we're slaves. But hey, we were slaves. We're slaves of sin. Now we're slaves of the Savior. So choose your master. We serve as slaves continually and eagerly obeying God's word and doing his will in newness of the spirit. We're empowered by the spirit of God because we can't do it in the flesh. That's the oldness of the letter is trying to do things in our own way, but in newness of the spirit. And we're living for God's glory. This is Romans chapter 6. You got your Bibles open to verse 4. Therefore we have been buried with him through Christ. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too, through the power of the spirit, we too might walk in newness of life. And the necessary fruit of salvation then is not sin like you want. It's serve. It's serving. No fruit. No faith. In John uh, verse 15, or chapter 15 verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. And then we already looked at verse 8, which is, you know, by this my, is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. Okay, so he say, okay, good. We're dead to the law, done with the law. No, we're not. We're not done with the law. Secondly, we see that we're, we're, we're respectful of the law. If we're released from the law, Paul's anticipating another question. Okay, we're released from the law. We don't have to suffer its, its consequences. And these critics might ask, well then, what should we say then? Is the law sin? I mean, is it really that bad because we're released from it? And again, I mean, if it is, if it's sin, then we shouldn't even pay any attention to the law. But Paul says, oh no. Repeating his same emphatic denunciation as he has given many, many times before to declare the absurdity of such a conclusion, he says, God forbid. That's my translation of may it never be. Okay, couldn't happen. It's, 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 it's ridiculous. Interestingly enough, as you, as you remember, as we walk through the text, in chapter 3, he says, may it never be. Verse 4, verse 6, verse 31, chapter 6, verse 2, chapter 6, verse 15, chapter 7, verse 13, and here in verse 7. May it never be. It's not going to happen. So to understand this relationship, okay, we're dead to the law, but we have a relationship with the law. What is the relationship of the law? In regard to sin, understanding it, Paul shares four marks or four functions of the law. 
that help us respect the law and actually understand that we should obey the law, okay, the, the moral law that God has set down. It's worthy of our respect and our obedience. So here they are. First, the law exposes sin. Verse 7, he says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. And then you notice he says, on the contrary. On the contrary to it being sin, far from it being sin. No. The law is not sin, but it makes sin known. It's not sin, it makes sin known. It reveals it to us. Okay? And Paul's personal testimony is interesting now. From 7, 7 through 13, Paul uses his personal testimony to teach universal truth. So he's talking about himself, but it applies to everyone, okay, who's a believer. Okay? So he's using this universal truth. He's speaking it. He says, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. Well, he had just said that in chapter 3, verse 20. Sin reveals it in chapter 4, verse 15. You can go there if you'd like. How do I know I'm speeding? You ever drive down the road and you go, I don't know what the speed limit is here. I mean, assuming you're looking for a sign. Uh, some people don't look for the sign. They just, oh, I have no clue what the speed limit is. But when you see the sign, you know what the speed limit is, right? You, you know, so is it, the, is it the speed limit's sign's fault if I'm speeding? No, but it alerts me to the fact that I am. It, it shows me that I'm, I'm breaking the law. Paul illustrated the law's illuminating function by using an example from the Old Testament in Exodus 20, verse 17. I, you know, I would not have known I was coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Exodus 20, verse 17. So what does it mean to covet? I want what you possess. And again, this is an illustration, one illustration, and the application is for any and every sin, but this is the one that he picks out. We have, a, we have a general sense, right? Uh, Romans chapter 2, verse 15. We have a general sense of right and wrong. But the law requires absolute perfection. Demand for perfect obedience. And this demand for perfect obedience awakens within us a fuller realization of how far short we fall from meeting that perfect standard. We see and realize our sinful intentions, our sinful inclinations, our sinful infractions, and we see the consequences if we sin. So the law makes it a, us aware of how wicked we really are. And God requires perfection. In Matthew chapter 5, uh, verse 20, uh, Jesus said, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And then in verse 48, he says, You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay, that's the standard. <laughs> okay, I'm... I'm the law shows us how decadent, how doomed, and how desperate we are in need of saving, being saved. And we've said this before. The purpose of the law was to show us we need a Savior, not to save us. Then the law doesn't just expose our sin, but it expands our sin. Now, when I say that, I'm not saying I'm laying it on the laws. The law is not to blame, but if you look at verse 8... He says, but sin. And notice that. It's the sin that's the culprit here. But, but sin in, the, in our heart, it's not the law, is the real culprit as it takes, like the ESV, it says, seizing. 
the NASB says taking, seizing the opportunity. It's like sin is just like waiting at the door. This is Genesis chapter 4. It's just kind of waiting, boom. It seizes the opportunity. It takes the opportunity, takes the commandment of the law, which reveals right and wrong. And from there, it's kind of like that's its launch pad, the law. And from there, it launches its assault. It launches its devious work of enticing the rebellious heart, producing coveting. Now, and I would say not just coveting, fill in your you know, sin, whatever sin you want. Lying, stealing, cheating, uh, lusting, gluttony. It, it, it produces that of every kind. In other words, it makes us more fully aware that, that we are uh, wanting and doing more stuff than we originally thought. Well, I, you know, I, I really don't covet, you know, somebody's shoes necessarily. But I may covet something else from somebody else. But it, it makes us aware. And so that, you know, we covet, we want. We want somebody's spouse, somebody's house, somebody's vacation, somebody's vocation. We want somebody's possession with somebody's position. We, I want that. And that's the sin that's within us. Uh, some of you are children. Some of you have children. Uh, some of you have grandchildren. Just tell the young people, whatever you do, do not go into our closet. Closet is off limits. When you turn your back, what will they do? They'll go into the closet. Because you told them not to go into the closet. And this, I think, is, is kind of a, a, a recurring theme as we see it. It arouses it. It expands it. The sin. We want what we're rebellious people resent restrictions. And we do what we're not supposed to do because the restriction tells us not to do it. Okay, how many of you actually, truthfully, been at the airport or been at an amusement park or been somewhere where they have those, those strap things, you know, that you have to weave around like you're some sort of a mouse through the maze. And you look ahead and you say, Ain't nobody in lunch. I'm going under. You know? Road closed to through traffic, local traffic only. Yeah, I'm local. <laughs> it arouses it within us. You see, the law amplifies sin. Why? Because apart from the law, the text says, apart from the law, sin's dead. Now, we know that's not true entirely because in chapter 5 we saw that the sin was around even before the law was given. So it's not that there's not an existence of sin, but the law magnifies the presence of sin and it magnifies the pull of sin in, in, in the person's heart to, to destroy, uh, to, to make us... Uh, sin. So their law exposes sin. The law expands sin, but it's sin is the culprit. And then it exterminates sinners, verses 9 through 11. He had been alive, Paul says in, in verse uh, 9, and I was once alive, apart from the law. Interesting that Paul, the zealous Pharisee, would say he was alive apart from the law. He was alive apart from the law, recognizing, you know, so he's not ignorant of it, 
And he, he, wasn't, he wasn't indifferent to the law as a zealous Pharisee, but he was alive. Alive in what way? In his confident delusion of possessing righteousness derived from the law. Okay, So he was alive, apart from the law, thinking that he was righteous by keeping the law. Now this is Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. You can look at there. Uh, I possess a righteousness derived from the law. No, but he wanted to possess a different righteousness, but he didn't know he needed a different righteousness until God got a hold of him. But he says, but when the commandment came, and this is verse 9, when the commandment came, when the law, when God's word came in a way that he actually understood it, he had had the commandments, but God revealed it to him in a new and special way. He understood what the law meant in its fullest sense. Sin became alive in that he was painfully aware that though he thought he was righteous, he was actually rebellious and an object of God's wrath. He was an object of God's wrath. And at the same time, the text says, he died. (laughs) How did he die? He died in the sense that he became aware that he was spiritually dead. That he knew that he was a spiritually dead person that he was alienated from God, that his works were worthless, and that he needed a righteousness. He needed God's righteousness that comes through faith. He didn't didn't have righteousness in the law. He needed God's righteousness, which comes through faith in Christ. And that's uh, that's Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. Okay? You see, the Bible is very clear. Sin alienates us from God. If you look at uh, Isaiah chapter... um, uh, 59 verse 2 he says but your wrongdoings have caused a separation between you and your God and your sin have hidden you his face from you so that you, he does not hear you it causes a separation and then we get to verse 10 and, and the commandment I like the ESV here but I don't have it translated it, it just says um, that the, the, the commandment was supposed to bring life but it actually caused death that's some sort of a, a translation he expected the commandment the truths of God's word representing God's word, if they were received and obeyed, hey, he'd be alive. Now, he had good reason to believe that in some ways because Leviticus chapter 18 verse 15, verse 5 says, so you shall keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a person follows them, then he will live by them. It doesn't say he'll be spiritually alive. It says he'll live by them. But he thinks, okay, I'm going to live by these things. He misunderstood it. But he thought it was true. But the commandment proved the result in death for him. What he thought was going to bring him life, if he just kept the legalistic oldness of the letter, actually resulted in death for him. Why? It says in verse 11. Now, interesting if you compare verse 8 and verse 11. But sin and for sin, sin again is the culprit. It, It took the commandment, which he looked to as a source of gaining life, and used it to kill him. How so? Same way as we talked about before. It deceived him into thinking that he could have a righteousness of his own derived from the law when in fact he could only have a righteousness if he was fully trusting in Jesus Christ. So it diverts our attention for him and for all of us. The law can divert us away into thinking that if I just do all the right things and say all the right things and give all the right things and and stand up, sit down, fight, fight, fight and do whatever I'm supposed to do then I'm good to go. And never see our need for Christ. And this was the problem. Such thinking eclipses our need to turn from our sin and trust Christ 
as the only basis for satisfying the righteous requirements of the law and delivering us from the just penalty of violating the law. He that is God made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. It comes by faith. Go back and read Romans chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. Works-based righteousness is no remedy for sin. We maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Romans chapter 3, verse 28. That's it. The law punishes sin by death. It doesn't save us from death. But if we're free and dead to the law, we're dead to sin, we're dead to death. The death of death and the death of Christ is the famous sermon title. Okay. Finally, the law expresses sin's sinfulness. If you read verse 12, it says, So then, here's the conclusion. Far from being sin, which is where he started with this thing, the, the law is holy. It's set apart. That's what it means to be holy. It's unblemished by any or, uh, or untainted, unstained uh, by any hint of evil. God's commandment is also righteous and morally good, he says. I'm not going to go there, but in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, it talks about this. God's word is perfect, the perfect standard by which every other moral conduct is, is measured. If somebody's justly convicted of embezzling and sentenced for it, it's not the law's fault. Their fault. It doesn't rest with the law. But if the law is holy, verse 13, some skeptic is going to say, okay, uh, did what's good cause me to die? That's verse 13. And Paul's immediate answer is, again, our favorite little phrase, may it never be. The good didn't cause the bad. No. It's not the good law that causes spiritual death, but rather it's sin. Which the good law exposes, expands, and uses to exterminate sinners. That it might be shown that the sin is sinful. Sin uses the good. Again, it goes back to that same thing. Sin deceives us into thinking that if we do the right things, then God will accept us. And what ends up happening is we end up dead because of our sin, because doing the right things doesn't make us righteous, and instead of turning to Christ and trusting in Him, whereby we become righteous. Uh, I want you to look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. Why the law then? It was added on account of violations having been ordered through angels at the hand of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. That seed is Jesus. So the law was given to me, it's a tutor that leads us to Christ, Paul goes on to say, uh, Scripture can find in sin, so that the promise by faith in Christ may be given to those who believe. That's the purpose of the law, to lead us to Christ, that we believe in Christ. I love this passage in John chapter 5, when Jesus is talking to the, uh, the Pharisees, and he says, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Get that? I know the Bible. I, I actually do the Bible. I, you know, I embrace the Bible, and I point out people who don't do the Bible. I'm good at that, too. This is the Pharisees. You search the Scriptures, you think that in them you have eternal life. And what does Jesus say? They are they which testify 
of me. Life is found in faith in Christ, not in fulfilling the law, which we can never do perfectly. Glory to God. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that we are rescued from and dead to sin and dead to the law and dead to death. So if you do not know Jesus, you're dead. In the sense that you are going to spend an eternity apart from God in hell. I don't want that. God doesn't want that. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, here's the deal. We're not done with the law. No, we've been rescued and and dead to the law. Why? So we can serve our Savior and bear fruit for God. Is that your mission? Regardless of your vocation? Regardless of your predispositions? Regardless, is that your vocation? Is that your passion? Is to, to serve God. Secondly, Share this truth. We, this is the message of salvation. We want other people to come to know Christ. Don't, it's not about legal. Every false religion is about works righteousness. And people go to hell because they're barking up the wrong tree. Search the scriptures and let the word of God convict us in our hearts so that we can repent of sin that's in our lives so that we can be restored into fellowship. We're not going to be condemned to hell because of our sin, but we have certainly separated ourselves from the Father and, and, our, and the Lord, and we want to be restored. And finally, this book is here to be enjoyed because it alone will guide our path and it alone will help us grow in Christ. Go back and read Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. Psalm 19, 105, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. And now as we close the service, what a better way than take the juice and the bread, which remind us of what Christ has done so that we can be unified with him and have victory over sin and death and hell and be his children. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your love. I thank you for sending your son. I thank you that we are dead to the law. But I also thank you that we have a duty, not in a legalistic sense, but out of devotion to respect and obey your word, which will move us along in our faith and help us to serve you and bear fruit for you, for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.